with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's the Thursday edition, which means we have Trudy Clausen in in about a half an hour's time with her guest today. But first off, we're going to start off with Tuesday morning's edition of Frontburner from CBC News. Hi, I'm Angela Starrett. It seems to me that there was a time in the pretty recent past that we talked about climate change as something that was coming, something that we would feel the effects of one day, maybe soon. But here in British Columbia, we're feeling it right now. You've heard about our floods, our fires, and the fallout. Damaged roads, displaced people, dead people. Experts will tell you it's impossible to know whether the catastrophic heat and record-breaking rain resulted directly from climate change. But they will say this, climate change made it worse. And it's this, well, worseness, that is a harbinger of what's to come for everyone as the planet continues to warm beyond the 1.1 degrees Celsius we've already hit. So today I want to talk about BC as a canary in the coal mine. What it looks like in a province now experiencing so many things we were warned could come with climate change. And what we can all learn from what's happening here. Arno Kopetsky is an environmental journalist and an author based here in BC. Hi, Arno. Hi, Angela. So you've called BC the quote-unquote the call coming from inside the house when it comes to climate change in Canada. What do you mean by that? Absolutely. I was thinking of that quintessential horror flick moment when (laughs) the murderer or the villain or the monster, he's calling you to taunt you and you're looking out the window because you think he's lurking outside somewhere. And then the audience realizes, no, the, the, the monster's inside. He's calling from the basement. He's in the house. And that feels like What's happening here with climate change in Canada, where I think as Canadians, we've often tended to view climate change as something that is distant in time and space. Maybe the Marshall Islands are going to go under. Maybe the polar ice caps are melting. And so, you know, Inuit communities and polar bears are going to suffer. And maybe by 2050, it'll come to affect us in the cities. But British Columbia has just very graphically demonstrated that it is in our house. It is here right now. And uh, it's coming for all of us. (laughs) Uh, It sounds kind of grim, but that's how I see it. Um, People are experiencing climate change now as well in other parts of the country. But it does feel like so many of the climate change issues of our time are, you know, really encapsulated here in BC these days. You know, I think the most obvious example is just the extreme weather we've been experiencing in this province. And I'm wondering if you could describe for people what these last few weeks have been like here in BC. Sure. So, you know, it's been a very wet fall and that's not unusual. It's a rainforest. We're all used to rain here. I I like it when it rains, especially after a hot, dry summer. But then it just kept raining. And then, you know, Sunday, the day after the Glasgow Climate Pact was signed, so we were kind of thinking about climate change. Then we got this atmospheric river come into the southern coast of of BC. And, And then I remember, you know, Sunday night, the first couple 
uh, things came in. We heard that drivers had been stranded on the Coquihalla by mudslides. And the Coquihalla is that major connector highway that everybody in Vancouver knows and is a little bit scared of. Uh, and then Monday morning, I remember this was what sort of did it for me. I live in Vancouver, so I should say that I've been perfectly safe and fortunate in that regard. Mm-hmm. But Monday morning, I went to wake up my daughter, who's six years old, for school. And usually that's a that's a struggle. Uh, but this mm-hmm. Monday in question, she was lying wide awake, staring at the ceiling. And, and she before I could say anything, she just said, Dada, it's raining too hard. I can't sleep. Wow. And that was pretty unusual. And then I started looking at the reports on my phone and all the channels. And then it just became one thing after another. Boom, boom, boom. This highway has been destroyed. Merritt, you know, this, the city of, of 7,000 people is on evacuation alert. Oh, it's on. Now they're, they're being evacuated. Oh, the highway coming out of Lytton. Now, you know, photos came out of there. It looked like some mythical beast had bitten the highway in half. Uh, the Sumas Lake started to become a lake again instead of the farmland that it had been for the last hundred years. And then by the end of Monday night, Vancouver was completely cut off by road and rail from the rest of the country. And we have spent the last two weeks started sort of comprehending the magnitude of what happened. As I speak, it's raining really hard in, in Victoria. And a couple of highways had opened up again, but they just closed again over the weekend with this with this next atmospheric river. And and in in Vancouver and Victoria, there's been gasoline rationing happening. And uh, so it's it's pretty wild out here, you know. And and it's also a bit surreal because in in Vancouver, most of Vancouver, aside from that gasoline rationing, it feels pretty normal. And yet, just 45 minutes east of us, Abbotsford is. Is you know, farmers have have lost their their entire farms have been washed away, animals and all. It's it's a state of chaos. It's funny that you said wild and surreal because that's what I was just what was going through my mind. The words that were going through my mind when you were talking, especially when you see those pictures of the the entire highway just ripped apart. It's so wild, and I mean, of course, this comes. Now, just a few short months after the summer's heat, you know, the heat dome that we experienced in the fire, which was also pretty extreme, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I was visiting my parents in Edmonton in August. Then I flew home uh, back to Vancouver and I really remember flying over what turned out to be the Kamloops fire region. I looked at the little graphic on the plane seat that shows you where your where your plane is and we were right over Kelowna and I looked out the window and it was it was cloudy but these pyrocumulonimbus clouds were bursting through the clouds below us and each one of them was, you know, this 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 basically a mushroom cloud from huge fires and and my daughter was in my lap and I said, you know, we looked out the window and she said, Dada, it's so beautiful. It was again this surreal, you know, we're mm. we're flying over this intense fire escape below us. And then, you know, as we landed, we got home safe and everything and I checked in and that was the day that the Coca-Cola closed because of flame. It had been engulfed in flame right. that very day. And so that was August, two months before that, the heat dome covered most of BC and, and Lytton became synonymous with climate change, setting first a heat record of nearly 50 degrees, the hottest anywhere in Canada had ever been in our recorded history. And then the next day, it just practically spontaneously combusted. And that was at the end of June. And that was the start of fire season, which then became the third worst fire season in BC's history from one stretch of the province to the other. And, and, you know, the the worst fire seasons in BC were in 2017 and 2018. So 
in the last five years, we've had three of the worst fire seasons in, in history. And so, yeah, these back to back to back provincial emergencies, it's just it's just relentless. talk about those, I guess, compounding effects in, in just a second. But before mm-hmm. I want to just talk a little bit more about how these events are connected to climate change. I mean, yeah. you know, heavy rains, flooding, forest fires, these aren't these aren't new phenomena in the province. So how is the extreme weather, this extreme weather that BC has been experiencing this year connected to climate change exactly? Yeah, you're right. You know, I wrote a piece for the Globe and Mail about the floods. And right after it, I got a few people emailing me saying, well, come on, my family's been living in Abbotsford for four generations. Here's a picture from 1949. Look, it's exactly the same flood as, as, as what's just now. This is nothing new. But what I would say is, with all due respect, but when your family farm flooded in 49, did it also flood in Victoria and over in Yoho National Park? Because this time around, there were 20 rainfall records set from one side of the province to the other. So it's both in terms of intensity and geographical scope of these climate events. Um, you know, it was the same with the fires. More of the province was covered in flame than almost ever before. And that heat dome back in June set, I think, uh, around 60 temperature records were set all over the province. Wow. So, of course, there have been natural disasters throughout the history of of life on Earth, but it is the intensity and the frequency of them that is new and genuinely unprecedented, a word we hear too much of these days. Right. And I want to talk about the the compounding effects. So one thing people who've read about the anticipated impacts of climate change will have heard about is the way the effects will start to build on each other. Can you tell me a little bit about how we're seeing that happen in BC right now? Yeah, I think the most obvious one is how heat can lead to fire, and and that was Litton for you. I think maybe less obvious is how forest fires, and, and BC is a bit unique in this because we have these forested mountains. When they catch fire and burn down, that turns what would have been a, a sponge, this this forested mountainscape that has roots and branches and leaves to, to absorb a lot of this water, it becomes blackened, hard soil. They, you know, the word for it is hydrophobic. Uh, and so essentially the water just turns into a water slide and, and the rainfall just zooms down the mountain and straight to the bottom of a watershed and, and fills up the rivers. Also makes the mountainside more prone to sliding uh, because the root systems aren't holding it together anymore. And so then basically that is a way of saying that these these huge fires make the landscape more prone to floods and mudslides and, and mountain slides. Hmm. I guess it's sort of like a, a climate cascade effect. And yes. it feels like the stress is compounding in that sort of cascading way too. You know, people's homes are under threat from fire one season and then floods the next. You know, mm-hmm. we've heard about, you know, climate refugees being something that will, will come from climate change and something that we're seeing a bit now in BC as well. How do you see that starting to play out here, that that compounding stress 
Yeah. Again, I, you know, I think Canadians, when we think of climate refugees, we typically think of people in other parts of the world, whether it's Bangladesh or these low lying Pacific islands. No, that's, this is in the house now. These flood, mm-hmm. 14,000 people were evacuated two weeks ago here in BC because of the floods. Thousands of people were evacuated over the summer because of fires. Uh, so just imagine living in these communities where you know, where you live next to a forest um, and any given summer, this could affect you. So I think those are, and of course it's, it's first nations communities are, are the, are the most affected by this. Um, yeah. You know, there are more first nations communities living in or near or around uh, the forest with that sort of urban forest interface. Um, yeah. So they are profoundly affected, but it, it is not just limited to any one demographic or group. I mean, even privileged me who lives in Vancouver, you know, my house isn't going to burn down because of a forest fire anytime soon. But I, I think the fabric of BC's culture is one that many of us have lived in, in several towns. And we have friends and relations in, in many communities from whether it's the Kootenays or the Okanagan or the Sunshine Coast or Vancouver Island. And each of those visits is a way of, of, you know, revisiting not just friends, but also landscapes and, and, and rebuilding connection with rivers and forests. I mean, that's what drew me to this, this really a a stunning, beautiful, dynamic province. Um, But now at any given time of year, you don't know if you're going to be driving into a fire or a flood. What you know when you can't travel around the, the province that you love to see your friends and, and, and community. I don't want to compare it to the impact of losing your house or your farm or, or you know death, but but it's also uh, not not nothing. I think it it just elevates this this sort of this level of of anxiety that is that is spreading around the province of not knowing what's going to happen next. On 93.1 CFIS-FM, that is part one of Tuesday morning's Frontburner from CBC News. We'll have the second part in a moment here on After 9. Hey world, this is Michael Franti. This is Kanan. Foho in the dark. Gogo Bordello. Hi, I'm Natasha Atlas. Greetings, this is Tanya Stevens. Justin Adams. This is Steve Riley of the Mamu Playboys. Talvin Singh, you're listening to Free Range Radio. Steve Berlin, Cesar Rosas. We're from Los Lobos and you've discovered music with no borders and no boundaries. This is Cal Toth, the best artist in the world. Come home to Worldly Canada Radio. Join me each week for a ride on the global side. World Beat Canada the radio Monday nights at 8 here on 93.1 CFIS FM. The Q3 Creative Business Hub is now home to the Q3 Community Market. Saturdays from 8.30 to 2, stop by to check out a wide variety of vendors and the great display of Christmas gift ideas. Homemade crafts, jewelry, unique items, you're going to find products only available at the Q3. Located kitty corner to the Farmer's Market, the Q3 Community Market. Saturdays from 8.30 to 2 in the Q3 Creative Business Hub at the corner of Quebec and 3rd. 
Hi, I'm Tab Baker of Remax Core Realty. Selling or buying a home is one of the most important decisions you will make in your life. Having a trusted, experienced, and well-trained professional on your side is vital in today's real estate market. Visit talktotab.ca or give me a call at 250-613-1755. If you are wondering what your home is worth in today's market, don't hesitate to contact me for a free, no-obligation market evaluation. When it comes to real estate in Prince George, remember, talk to tab. Forecast from Environment Canada. Sunny today, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this morning. Wind from the southwest at 20 gusts into 40. A high of minus 1 with a wind chill to minus 10. Partly cloudy tonight. More gusting southwest winds. A low of minus 8 with a wind chill to minus 15. For Friday, mainly sunny. Wind from the south at 20 and a high of minus 9. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is part two of Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News. On top of the the stress and the anxiety and the dislocation, people have also died uh, in the heat this summer and in the mudslides this fall. Yeah. Um, well, I think six hundred people or so died in the heat wave this summer. So that was enormous. I mean, that is. I don't know what to say about that. My my friend is a firefighter here in Vancouver, and he described when the heat dome hit. Every single fire truck and ambulance was out on call, and there was 250 more calls that were waiting to be responded to. As a fireman, he wasn't responding to fires in the city. He was responding to mostly elderly people who were in, mm. in decrepit, decrepit homes and that didn't have air conditioning, and they were basically dying of heat stroke. And nobody knew how to prepare for that. And, and so everybody's just sort of grappling with that right now. It's the same with the floods. You know, six people died in mudslides. Again, I don't want to keep referencing my, my friends, but I'll just share one more story. A, a friend of mine was driving from Vancouver to Vernon in the Okanagan on the Sunday night that the rains started to happen. And they were sort of convoying. Someone else was driving 20 minutes behind them. The person driving 20 minutes behind them got trapped by a mudslide and, and it was fine, but couldn't make it through. My friend did make it through. And so they realized that they were literally minutes away from getting taken out by a mudslide. Um, and that's how close it was. And he said he described this harrowing drive of cars on the side of the road with their with their tires just lacerated by all the debris. And then they realized that moments behind them, the entire mountain had, had given out and, and crushed the road. And it's it's a bit miraculous that more people weren't killed or, or badly injured in these mudslides. But as these events pile up and become more and more frequent and severe, unfortunately, you can be sure that, that more and more people will be getting hurt. And, and the same with fires. Yeah. And I mean, that that stress and that the, the deaths, that's also being experienced by wildlife as well. When BC scientists yeah. estimated that this summer's heat dome killed one billion marine animals, um, mussels essentially cooked in their shells. The flooding that we've seen in the last few weeks has happened during salmon spawning season. And yeah. I read an account from a guy in Abbotsford who said he saw a salmon just swimming up his waterlogged street. Is the loss mm-hmm. of biodiversity another compounding effect of climate change here? Absolutely. You know, I was talking to a conservation scientist a couple months ago before these floods. And and I asked her uh, what she thought was the greatest threat to biodiversity in, in Canada. One of those questions that you think you know the answer to, because I always associated it as being habitat loss, 
And she said, actually, no, uh, that used to be the case, but now it's climate change and climate change is, is the thing that is, uh, destroying, uh, biodiversity more, more than anything. And, and so you mentioned salmon. The Fraser River runs through Vancouver. It used to be the most, one of the most prolific sockeye salmon rivers on earth. 14 to 15 million sockeye used to return every year to, to spawn. Uh, we're watching it die basically. This last couple of years, there's been a few hundred thousand sockeye salmon that, that made it back. And this flood, happened just after they've laid all their eggs in the gravel beds. And now this huge flood comes along and, and just blasts up these gravel beds. And so that's going to have a, a really deleterious effect on, on salmon populations. If you look at forests, as winters get warmer, they become more hospitable to uh, invasive species of, of pests, like the pine beetle that has just ravaged BC's pine at BC and Alberta, they've lost so much of their, of their pine. And so we often think of forests as being our friend and, and that's going to, we can use forests to save us from climate change. But in fact, I, I think a better way to think of it is that we actually have to protect our forests from climate change, that they are extremely vulnerable to climate change now. And we're seeing our forests really implode and, and get decimated by various impacts of climate change. And as the forest dies, well, there's the habitat loss that then impacts all the different species that rely on forests as, as their home and shelter and, and, and food. Yeah. And I want to get into that, um, talking about how forestry has also impacted this. So there's these mm-hmm. other relevant contributing factors in terms of these compounding climate change effects we're talking about here. How has industrial policy come into play here uh, in B.C.? Yeah, forestry, industrial forestry is a huge part of the story for sure. You know, we've, we've basically turned most of BC in, into a, into a tree farm and they actually call them tree farm licenses is how logging companies describe uh, the, the lots that they, that they have. And in so doing, A, just if you clear cut a mountainside, then it does the same thing that a fire would do where it, it loosens the soil and makes it susceptible to sliding and also takes away the, the sponge water absorptive capacities of that mountainside. And, and so it makes it much more vulnerable to, to flooding. In Merritt was sort of the clearest example of that. The entire watershed around Merritt was clear cut over the last 20 years, partly because of a pine beetle infestation. And so that denuded landscape became this water slide for all of these heavy rains then to converge and, and collect in the rivers and, and, and just catastrophically flood Merritt. And so the, our industrial forest policy, even though it is a little bit better than it was in the 80s when clear cuts were just massive. You know, clear cuts are smaller, but we have still been aggressively logging throughout the province, including, of course, old growth along the coast. And, you know, you can't replace an original primary forest with all of its diversity with a tree farm where there's one or two species of tree, they're all the same age, they're densely packed. Those tree farms, even once they grow and then you've got a root system back holding the earth together, they're very susceptible to invasive species and to, to fire. So industrial forestry has really been a, a, a contributing factor that is that has made not just our forests, but our, our infrastructure and, and all of BC more vulnerable to to the impacts of, of heavy rains and, and heat waves that then spark fires.
um, when you're talking about the tree farms and the old growth logging, you know, that that too, in a way, feels like it's part and parcel of the climate change issues of our time. You know, the way that industrial resource extraction is intertwined with this. And of course, mm. we're seeing these big conflicts around that here too, not just with logging in Ferry Creek. Which holds some of the last old growth trees on Vancouver Island. Since losing a court battle, old growth logging opponents have been doing their best to stop the chainsaws, creating complex obstacles for the RCMP to remove, even cementing themselves. Also, as the the province flooded, the RCMP was in Wet'suwet'en territory, arresting Indigenous people who oppose the coastal gas link pipeline. It just kind of feels like another way that BC is almost, you know, emblematic of this climate change moment we're in. We really are. We're, uh, it's, yeah, those images out of Wet'suwet'en territory would be harrowing at any time, but for, for land defenders to be getting arrested, trying to stop a, a natural gas pipeline in the immediate aftermath of, of this harrowing climate disaster it's just it's beyond irony it's it's really really painful um you know there's so many ways to look at it one of the ways that i think of it is is climate change is actually itself a symptom of industrial policy and you know it's a symptom of fossil fuel extraction and burning but that industrial policy goes well beyond fossil fuels and even if we decarbonized today we would still be consuming the earth's resources at at a really unsustainable rate. And mm. so the, it quickly gets a lot bigger than than just fossil fuels. It goes into, you know, how has civilization created all of this, this material well-being that, that is a part of the story as well. We live pretty good lives here in, in BC, many of us. And that is, you know, a, an outcome of, of our industrial policy. In BC, especially, we've, we've got so much there's so much mining and forestry and fishing. Uh, you can just see that our, our leadership here is sort of trapped in a, in a bind of, and I, I don't want to let them off the hook, but I, I think it's sort of a lack of imagination of, of well, we've always made money this way and, and, and we need money now more than ever after two years of pandemic debt. And, mm-hmm. and what are the things that make us this money? Well, it's, it's been oil and gas and, and, and logging, oil growth and all these things. And, and at the very moment, that we need money more than ever, people like me come along and say, well, we have to stop doing all the things that make us money. Um, I think there are solutions to this, but I, I do think it calls into question, you know, our, our entire economic model. And, and that's that's a big conversation. I mean, I, I want to talk about one more of these climate change warnings now coming to life, and, and that's the impact on infrastructure. How expensive is this all going to be? How are we seeing that come up in BC now? Yeah, the, the closest thing I've I've heard to an actual figure uh, that came from, I think, the Minister of Public. I can't even remember who it was. I'm sorry, but he said it's going to cost an awful lot. Uh, we've got that fiscal capacity, but it is going to cost a lot. The pot- <laughs> that's, that's the closest thing I've heard. Just to put I mean, it mildly. <laughs> yeah, it's something like that. So, you know, the, the mayor of Abbotsford said it would Abbotsford alone would be a billion dollars. So that's one mm-hmm. figure, and that's that's one town. It's going to be astronomical in the I would imagine in the 
tens of billions. I don't see how it can't be. I mean, we're talking about if you just look at the images of, of the damage that's been done to multiple highways, including Highway 1 and the Coquihalla, these aren't just mudslides that a few shovels and tractors will, will clear away the mud and it's it's open again. These these have been snapped in half by rivers that have been rerouted. They can't just rebuild them. They have to rebuild them in such a way that they can withstand future shocks. One of the things that I've found interesting and have learned is how engineering has to change some one of its fundamental premises that when you build a highway or a bridge or a railway, you look at what is the worst thing that's happened in the last 100 years or the last 200 years, and you build that highway to be able to withstand that event. But the last 100 years are no longer a guide to the next 100 years. And so now they have to start looking at climate models that are predicting much, much worse disasters than have ever happened before. And not just happening in isolation, but happening one after the other, back to back. So I can't tell you how much it's going to cost to build BC's infrastructure, but I can tell you that all of Canada needs to start asking these questions and, and asking, well, where are we are we going to keep building in floodplains? It's, it's really an all of society response as, as we look to how can we adapt to the climate change impacts that are here right now and will, will, will be here for the foreseeable future. And then hopefully we can use that as as a sufficient urgency to decarbonize our society and and prevent it from getting much worse than it than it already is and, and will be. Hmm. And I think you've touched on this throughout this conversation, but what do you think the rest of the country can learn from what's happening here in BC? I guess there's a pragmatic answer to that question, which is on one level, just adaptation and, and mitigation. We have to look at how can we sort of shockproof our, our infrastructure, our cities, our farms. So that's adaptation. And then mitigation is, okay, well, how can we now drastically decarbonize because this is 1.1 degrees? And what's it going to be like if, if we get up to 2.4 degrees, which is where the current trajectory has has us going? So that's the practical answer. Uh, but I, if, if you're only thinking of this in practical terms, I think you're missing point to an extent. And, and I think these kinds of events, I, I hope that they spur some some far-reaching reflection on, on how we live and what we value and what our relationships are like to each other as humans and to the landscapes that we inhabit and the food that we eat. You know, do we want to be relying on, on these supply chains that can be very efficient but have zero resiliency built into them? Do we want to support farmers who have a relationship with the land that they're farming do we want to be really focused on making as much money and consuming as, as much as we can? Or can we sort of rejig some of our value sets and, and lean into community because we're going to really need each other? I mean, here in BC, the, these thousands of people have, have had their lives destroyed. Farms have been washed away. Their homes have been washed away. Maybe their relatives have died. They're going to need us. We're going to need each other. And so I, you know, I just think it's, you know, for a hundred years and more now, we've, our society has been thriving to some extent on this industrial model. Obviously, many people have not been thriving under it and many people have been victimized by, by colonization. And I think that the impacts of that are, are coming very clear to a, a huge demographic that, that thought everything was just fine all along. And so I think some of these, I, I, I hope that what's happening right now, the scale of it and, and the shock of it 
will will spur some some deeper questions than just well how can we build bigger dikes and better roads arno thank you so much for this i really appreciate your time today angela thank you it's so nice to speak with you Before we let you go, a little news about this new COVID-19 variant of concern, Omicron. On Monday, the province of Quebec confirmed its first case of Omicron from a traveler who came from Nigeria. This is after the first Canadian cases were announced in Ontario on Sunday. The Director General of the World Health Organization has said this variant shows just how important it is for countries around the world to respond to this virus together instead of competing for resources and shutting each other out. We've got a whole episode about this coming your way later this week. And that's it for today. If you like this podcast, please give us a rating and review on your podcast app. It really does help us out a lot. I'm Angela Sterrett filling in for Jamie Poisson, and I'll be back tomorrow. CFIS-FM. That is Tuesday morning's edition of FrontBurner from CBC News. You can also catch FrontBurner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to be listening tonight at 11 for this morning's FrontBurner when they will be talking about Chinese tennis star Peng Shui. Where and how is she? When After Dawn 9 returns, it's the Thursday morning guest with Trudy Clausen. The Government of Canada has launched the New Horizons for Seniors program, Call for Proposals. The program supports projects addressing five objectives, including engaging seniors in the community through the mentoring of others, expanding awareness of elder abuse, and supporting social participation and inclusion of seniors. Details are available through canada.ca slash seniors. The New Horizons for Seniors program Program 2021-22. Application deadline is at noon, December 21st. For more than 20 years, Prince George residents have united with communities across the country to support the annual Relay for Life. The Canadian Cancer Society is urgently seeking volunteers for next year's event. The society is hoping to return to in-person events, bringing back the beloved Prince George Relay on June 11th. This won't be possible without a team of dedicated volunteers. For a full list of vacant volunteer roles, visit the links page at cfisfm.com. Interested volunteers can also email relay at cancer.ca for more information. The BC Schizophrenia Society has launched its Cannabis and Mental Health video. The video centers around questions regularly asked by youth across the province about cannabis, including the impact of cannabis on the brain and how it may affect those at risk of developing a serious mental illness. Visit bcss.org to watch the Cannabis and Mental Illness video. Go through the resources and find out how you can help share this information with the youth in your life. The Alzheimer's Society of BC is presenting in-person education Tuesday, December 14th with Getting to Know Dementia. Enhance your knowledge about dementia and learn about the different types of resources available at any stage of the disease. To register or for more information, call the First Link Dementia Helpline at 1-800-936-6033. Getting to Know Dementia from the Alzheimer's Society of BC, Tuesday, December 14th from 1 to 3.30 at the Prince George Public Library. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning, Prince George. My name is Trudy.
Trudy Clausen, and today I am privileged to have Chris Monroe, Principal and CEO of CM2 Ventures, Inc. Uh, welcome, Chris. Thank you, Trudy. Nice to be joining you this morning. Yes, so Chris uh, is part of a business, line of business that is very, very important to each and every one of us because I don't think we'd be having much for breakfast if it wasn't for people like Chris. Um, uh, which is supply chain management. Now, so I'm really just going to start and jump in because without that, without knowing what that actually means, really how I describe your business and, and what I read um, about your business means nothing. So can you start us off there? Sure. Let's talk about supply chains. It's a word or a phrase that we've heard so often lately in the media, and everybody has their own perspective on it. And I laugh when I hear a lot of reporters and journalists talking about the supply chain because they are only picking up on one facet of the supply chain. Um, I've also heard that it's like playing a game of whack-a-mole right now. You know, you're hitting one thing at a time and it's a moving target. And while that's true in a sense, uh, you know, the speed of it is moving forward. It's always been whack-a-mole in supply chain. But the speed of it has increased significantly you know, in the last two years. But I like to think of the supply chain as more of an integrated network of different points, um, almost like an orchestra. We have individual mu musicians in an orchestra who are masters of their craft. They're professionals. They understand their music. They understand their instruments, the maintenance on it. And they are the experts in the orchestra. And supply chain is like an orchestra. You've got all these different points with experts in all the different fields. And it's about directing or understanding the pressure points in each of those areas. As in an orchestra, what happens if a violin breaks a string? Or what happens if the double bass falls off their stool? Or somebody <laughs> misses the timing? How do you pull that together? The supply chain is exactly the same. We have some... Some major areas, such as logistics and transportation. What about warehousing is another key important part. Inventory management, so we can all get our stuff when we need it. Uh, quality, what about the quality we're bringing in? Um, that's critically important for most organizations. There's manufacturing. Uh, there's procurement. All of these different networked points are part of an integrated supply chain. And a supply chain manager's role is not a command and control role. So not like the conductor? Not really like a conductor. It's more like understanding the different pressures in the different points along the network and being able to um, minimize the risks of those through various different strategies so, and maximize the opportunities for the organization that you're working for. So would it be similar to... Um, like if you're doing a recording of an orchestra, similar to the sound man who's managing the sound? Like this, so that like that the that the end product yes. works? As in an orchestra you need good music coming out at the end. Yes. In supply chain you need the products when you need them, at the right place at the right time, the right quality and the right number. So it's it's a similar type function but it's not a, a command and control directing the supply chain, um, but it's about understanding it. And the specific pressures on different points, it's like a, the butterfly effect. 
of where, you know, the butterfly flaps its wings in the Amazon and a storm happens in Europe. That's like the supply chain. Uh, Very, very integrated. You can have a small pressure such as a pandemic starting in China that nobody thought anything of two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. And it affects the entire world now. It's just those different pressures. And how do you manage those pressures for your particular organization? Okay, so um, so what do you do? Um, like, we'll get into the effect of the pandemic and, and for instance, and the lo- more locally, the BC flooding. Um, but what do you do? What do you do on a typical day, like for for Chris? What does she do? <laughs> for my role, for my clients, a lot of it is looking at the latest research coming out, and that's not just across Canada and North America. It's also uh, Europe and Australia and Asia. Just kind of an overview of what's happening in the organizations globally, uh, where some of the pressure points may be developing, and what can we do to mitigate those risks. Okay, and so you you work not only for, I think in the past you've been hired by Ministry of Education, correct? Uh, I've done some work for Ministry of Education. I work for local governments, very small local governments, uh, school districts, uh, universities, and I do some work in healthcare occasionally as well. Okay, well, we'll be back shortly. Um, we're talking to Chris Monroe, and we'll be back. The Seniors Activity Centre at 4th and Brunswick is back in operation. Now open for coffee and lunches, the staff welcomes everyone to stop by and check out the facilities and their activities. Lunch prices are affordable with a variety of nutritious meals served Monday through Friday from 11 to 1. The Prince George and District Seniors Activity Centre, ready to serve you with a host of activities and lunch Monday through Friday at 4th and Brunswick. The Prince George Symphony Orchestra is presenting Winter Wonderland Sunday at UNBC's Canfor Theatre. Enjoy a classical presentation of holiday favourites in this afternoon presentation ideal for the whole family. Tickets are available at pgso.com, in person at 2880 15th Avenue, or by phone at 250-562-0800. Sponsored by Canadian Tire and TELUS, the Prince George Symphony Orchestra's Winter Wonderland Sunday afternoon at 2 in the Canfor Theatre at UNBC. When Mums the Word hits the stage at Theatre Northwest, you can expect an earful. Written by six women, all of them mothers, Mums the Word features women being asked to describe motherhood. Theatre Northwest is hoping audience members will have the opportunity to share their stories at the end of each performance. Mums the Word is on stage at Theatre Northwest in the Park Hill Centre from April 14th to May 4th. Tickets for Mums the Word are on sale now at theaternorthwest.com. Forecast from Environment Canada, sunny today, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this morning. Wind from the southwest at 20 gusts into 40, a high of minus 1 with a wind chill to minus 10. Partly cloudy tonight, more gusting southwest winds, a low of minus 8 with a wind chill to minus 15. For Friday, mainly sunny, wind from the south at 20 and a high of minus 9. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning, and we are certainly back with someone who makes a lot of things happen in Prince George. I'm with uh, our guest, uh, Chris Monroe of CM2 Ventures. Uh, Chris is, uh, does supply chain management, and she was just telling us about some of the major clients she's had, and I was asking her what she does on a typical day. And I'd like you to expand a little bit more on that. Um, uh, you were saying that you look at the research, and I'm assuming that's like to find out um, what's happening in the industry. But if, let's say, somebody has ordered, I don't know, 
give me can you give me an example of something like if you're let's say you're someone's hired you to get the supplies for a building does that make sense yes for sure okay um look at the components of what goes into a building we have lumber we have uh, concrete we have metal we have nails we've got hardware we've got glass we've got windows all of those start with raw material components and the raw materials for those um, are very volatile the market is extremely uh, sensitive to different pressures so we kind of need to know generally what's going up and what's going down. And a good example of that is when lumber took a skyrocketing yes. uh, leap. Uh, that had a major effect on construction. Major effect. Um, I was hearing that it was a costing an uh, additional $36,000 to build a house just because of lumber prices. So you take that effect, and it's just one component, we have to look at the whole of all of the components to look at the effect on the supply chain. Um, so we start with the raw materials, and then we look at the manufacturing. What's happening with manufacturing? Well, COVID has had a, a particular effect on all industries, not just manufacturing. But when you think of all the people in a plant, and now they have to social distance, now they have to reduce their staff or their alignment, that causes a reduction in manufacturing. Like an output yes. productivity. Yes. Okay. So we don't have enough um, manufactured goods to satisfy the demand if they're not being produced according to the normal demand strategy. Then we come to inventory. Where is the inventory? People are stockpiling inventory or they're running out of inventory. Over the last, I'd say, 30 years, we've had a strategy in supply chain of just-in-time. Um, it's more right. efficient. It's more effective. It was based on... Yeah, because then, yeah, then you're not paying for storage, exactly, right? Exactly, and that's a huge cost. And that was based on uh, Toyota's uh, quality management program where you only want things coming in as the demand requires Oh, really? Them. I thought that was Walmart that came up with that. No, before then. Before, before then, before really? Then, oh, that's yeah. interesting. Okay, yeah, I didn't know that. Just an offside, I visited a Toyota plant in Indiana uh, many years ago and watched them in their quality circles and how they demand plant. Very fascinating from a supply chain perspective. Oh. So we have the demand planning. So we've gone from just-in-time, which worked well for years, mm -hmm. uh, very well. And then we had a black swan called COVID and the pandemic, and everything just went out the wind. Um, so now we're moving to from a just-in-time to a just-in-case. We're starting to stockpile a little bit more inventory in the pipelines uh, just to ensure that we have the supplies ready for when the demand increases and when we need those supplies. So warehousing becomes an issue. Where do we put all those just-in-case supplies now? Uh, we have to be able to find uh, efficient and economical warehouse space to store those. Then we need the distribution network to get it from... First of all, the raw materials to the manufacturers, from the manufacturers to the distribution points, from the distribution points to the warehouses and to the end user, whether that's a store, whether that's a client, uh, a further distribution network. So there's a lot of components in there, and each one of those is very sensitive to any pressures that might happen in the marketplace. Uh, take, for instance, we're hearing all about logistics right now. Yes. And the ports are backed up. And, you know, there's no drivers, so we're short transport people. Um, that all has a huge impact on the transportation network. Um, 
one of the things with the ports is we've been building bigger ports to hold bigger ships because it's more efficient yes. to ship huge container loads on bigger ships. But there's only so many ports that can take those bigger ships. <laughs> We're just sometimes too smart for our own good. We hey? are. So now you hear about IKEA and Walmart buying their own ships. Really? Yes, to maximize their performance because the larger ships are all tied up in ports because there's not enough of them and the distribution networks have failed them so they're looking to do something different on their own so wow they're buying smaller smaller boats or renting or leasing smaller ships and they can bring those into smaller ports so the smaller ports are going to see an increase in volume coming across and suppliers need to be satisfied that they can manage those right and get the products to their end users when they require them Wow. So how does that play out in Prince George? Like all of this, like the need for more storage, that kind of thing? Like, do we see that in Prince George? Like, are people buying up storage space or renting it? Not yet. And this is something I'm not quite understanding yet, but perhaps it can be explained. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a, a radio journalist talking to somebody in Waterloo about the blockage in Vancouver port right. because all the roads were closed and they couldn't get anything out of there and how detrimental that was going to be to the Canadian supply chain. And the first thing I thought of, well, hasn't anybody heard about Prince Rupert? I mean, you know, the the rail cars, I'm sure, have been looking at different avenues for shipping those products. Yes. So they're looking at perhaps Prince Rupert, which does have some capacity to take them. So they've already made these decisions before this person was saying it's detrimental. I'm sure Prince Rupert can't take on the entire Vancouver no. port. And, of course, contracts go along with that. Shippers have contracts with various ports that are very difficult to get out of. But perhaps this force majeure thing of road closure might be something we could look at. But I'm sure all of those things are being taken into account by the professionals in their fields, looking for avenues to maximize the opportunity for moving goods around BC. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Well, it's uh, nearly time for a break. And so when we get back, uh, I want to touch a little bit on the effects of the flooding and the whole run uh, in the grocery stores a little bit and maybe touch a little bit about the uh, on the future of supply chain management. One size does not fit all. A well-planned and implemented strategic plan can provide high levels of direction that aligns your team and accomplishes your not-for-profit goals. On January 27th, Strategic Planning from Vantage Point will focus on the importance of a strategic plan, its components, and how it can be achieved. For full details or registration, visit thevantagepoint.ca. It's another online learning opportunity from Vantage Point Strategic Planning ABCs, January 27th from 1 to 4. Career paths are rarely linear. Not-for-profit leaders have career choices that lead to unexpected opportunities. Learn how to intentionally manage your career to foster your professional success with Vantage Point Strategic Career Management. This three-hour workshop provides clarity on marketable skills, developing next steps, and learning actions to proactively manage your career. Registration and full details are available through thevantagepoint.ca. Strategic Career Management, today from 1 to 4 through thevantagepoint.ca. Free caregiving support groups are still available for family or friend caregivers of seniors. The online meetings take place the last Tuesday of each month at 6.30. A joint presentation of the Native Friendship Centre, Healthy Aging by United Way, Family Caregivers of BC, and your Council of Seniors. Free online family friend caregiver of seniors support group. 6.30, the last Tuesday of every month. Email bahfacilitator at pgnfc.com to take part. 
The 2022 BKT and OK Tire World Women's Curling Championship is March 19th to 27th at CN Center. Full event, championship weekend, opening weekend, and Monday to Thursday single-day packages are all available for purchase online through curling.ca and at the CN Center box office. All fans, athletes, volunteers, and event staff will need to provide proof of full vaccination. The 2022 BKT and OK Tire World Women's Curling Championship, March 19th to 27th at CN Center. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning. We're back for our last part here, talking with Chris Monroe of CM2 Venture, Inc., um, talking about supply chain. And I was just going to ask you, uh, and like I was speaking with Jim Young a week or two ago about um, the, the panic buying that we saw, you know, at, at the beginning of COVID and then at, when the flooding happened in, in the Lower Mainland. Um, can you speak to that? Like, uh, I mean, yeah, from, from a supply chain management perspective, uh, I mean, I'm not asking you to comment on the psychology of people <laughs> because I think we probably still don't know. Uh, but just on the supply chain management, like, should we be concerned? Should we maybe consider having a little bit more stock in our houses as the, as these changes are happening? I think the supply chain is pretty resilient. Sometimes it takes a little while to catch up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think people don't realize that there are experts in every field of the supply chain, people who know what they're doing, people who are very capable of running their businesses, and people who are concerned about how these goods and how their customers are going to be satisfied. That's the essence of business. So panic buying, we have no control over the emotions of people. But it is a natural emotion. Yeah. You short something, you want it right now, and you want most of it. Uh, and that really does throw the supply chain into confusion because you're planning for a certain demand level based on past histories usually with maybe a little extra here or there. And then you've got this huge explosion of people running out and taking everything, and you've got nothing left to give. Um, but the resilience and agility of supply chain, I think, is is it's there. So if, if people want to feel a little bit better about this, and, and I mean, I know what I did when the flooding started. I mean, actually, yeah, when I, uh, about, yeah, I think when the flooding started and a little bit before the panic buying began, I sort of thought, I wonder if this is going to happen again. So I went to the grocery store and just bought a few staples that had been low, and I just bought, you know, one extra, that kind of thing just so that I wouldn't be panicked. So I don't know, maybe I started it. (laughs) But um, do you think that might help people? And do you think that might be useful for people to just stock a little bit extra, like maybe one extra, just so that they don't feel get into that panic mode? And I know that's sort of a psychology question, but... If that makes you comfortable, yes, do it. It's not going to have a major effect on the supply chain. Just don't go out and buy a truckload of toilet paper because everybody else needs it too. (laughs) Okay, unless you're willing to go door-to-door handing it out, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, As we've seen with the disruptions that have happened recently, there's rerouting available. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not just trucks. There are flights. There are airports. Um, I think Air. I was hearing this morning, Air, Car, Air Canada has converted one of their jazz planes to a cargo plane. Which is very good because yeah. they're short on passengers, right? It's forward thinking. Somebody yeah. in that industry is an expert and saw the opportunity. Well, and that's something that I want to expand a little bit on because we need to remember that if we're sitting in our houses and worried a little bit about, will I have milk? 
Well, we have to remember that there is a farmer out there who wants, who has cows who wants to sell his milk. There is a transport company who wants to, or the, the, the company who does the, um, hydrogen, hydrogenization or whatever of the <laughs> milk, pasteurization of the milk. They also want to stay in business. Yes. And so there are all those people that are self-interested for their own families because they want to have money to buy food. Um, so they're all trying to make it work. You're right, Trudy. It's the supply side and the demand side that has to be balanced. And that's part of the supply chain pressures is how do you balance that accurately to get the right amount of product to the right consumer that can satisfy both the supply side and the demand side. And I think for the most part that happens, but there is a little bit of lag when a disruption happens. Mm -hmm. But I think people should be reassured that it's not going to be for a long term. Um, it's just a short-term thing until somebody can put in a different plan to get it there. Mm -hmm. Because the whole world operates on a balanced system. And when it gets unbalanced, it gets confusing for people and they start panicking. So as much as we possibly can, relying on the experts in the field to balance that, it will work out for everybody. I trust the supply chain immensely. I'm part of it. I understand yeah. it. And I would like to see people trusting it just as much. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you see in the future for uh, supply chain management? What are some of the challenges that you see coming up? or And is there a future in the business? Like, should more people consider entering the business? Oh, there's lots of people trying to enter the business right now. <laughs> um, in my profession, we suffer from a lack of of knowledgeable and experienced people. Across Canada, there's millions of businesses from small to large, and there's only just over 7,000 professional supply chain managers in my field. So is your, is, are you accredited? Like, is there a course that you can take? Or? Yes. There's a, the Supply Chain Canada program has a, a, a program of development, a professional program leading to an SCMP designation. Okay. There's also other industries. Uh, NIGP is is more public sector. All right. Okay, well, we ran out of time. So thank you so much, Chris, for coming in today. And uh, that was Chris Monroe of uh, CM2 Ventures, Inc. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Echo Wiley, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. Theme music is by The Ebbs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. You're listening to CFIS-FM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 on the FM dial. CFIS-FM is owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society.